five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Boucher. Today on the Space Economy podcast, we have the third episode of our annual winter series. Today, we have another Future in Space Operations episode, continuing our series related to NASA's return to the moon with the Artemis program. In our first episode, we focused on NASA's Viper robotic precursor mission to the moon's south pole. In the second episode, we focused on the Lunar Gateway's first habitable element, the Habitation and Logistics Outpost, known as HALO, but which has been combined with Maxar's power and propulsion element to create what is now being called the Comanifest Flight. Today our focus is a look back to help us with the way forward. James Head of Brown University discusses increasing science operations engineering synergism in the Apollo Lunar Exploration Program, perspectives for the Artemis Program. Most of the people who listen to this podcast weren't born when the Apollo missions took place, and some are working on the Artemis Program. This episode provides useful information for Artemis participants as they prepare for humanity's return to the moon. The presentation that goes with this podcast is available on our website. Before we start the presentation, though, here's a message from our sponsor, Circo Canada. We would like to thank Circo Canada and our other sponsors, as well as our loyal Patreon supporters who make this podcast possible. With 40 years' experience in the space sector, Circo offers a full range of operational and engineering services. Through long-standing partnerships like the one Circo enjoys with the European Space Agency, Circo contributes to programs like Copernicus and Onda, supporting open data and user experience. With best-in-class capabilities in Earth observation, Circo offers a wide range of space and ground support, from data capture to data handling to data exploitation. For more information on Circo's space capabilities, visit circo.com backslash na backslash Canada. Okay, now let's listen in to how the Apollo program will help us with the Artemis program. And Jim, the floor is yours. Okay, thanks very much. It's a real pleasure to be here. This is about the future in space observations, uh, operations FISO, but we're going to talk a little bit about the past of space op operations, and in particular, uh, how the Apollo Lunar Exploration Program uh, essentially feeds forward to the future, to Artemis and to beyond. Um, it's a great pleasure to be here because uh, these are really excellent uh, telecons. Um, I hope you have your, the slides up here. I'll start with slide one, which really illustrates uh, what we're talking about here. We uh, are in the middle of the celebration of the 50th anniversary of Apollo, Apollo the program. Uh, we're between Apollo 13 and Apollo 14 50 years ago uh, today, and we were recovering at that time from uh, the Apollo 13 uh, accident on the way uh, to the moon and a successful return and the reconfiguration of the systems that uh, failed in that uh, endeavor. And as you can see today, I think, uh, this was an amazing recovery. Uh, we were able to get back to lunar exploration very rapidly and continue on with the Apollo Lunar Exploration Program. And why this is so important is because in my career in NASA at the time, I worked throughout the Apollo Program uh, for all the landings and surface operations, et cetera, and uh, basically, what I learned from that was science, operations, and engineering synergism. And everybody knows what synergism is when the sum is greater than just the adding all the parts up. Uh, and that's really what it was. It was an amazing time. So today I want to share with you uh, essentially what it was like and how we can take some of the lessons from uh, the Apollo Lunar Exploration Program and apply them not just to Artemis, but to forward thinking about all lunar and planetary exploration uh, to the moon, Mars, and beyond. So let me go to the second slide. Let's just step back a minute even further <laughs> and think about pre-1959. What do we know about the moon? Actually, the better question to ask is what did we not know? We didn't know hardly anything. We didn't know its origin. We didn't know its age. We didn't know whether it had formed hot or cold. We didn't know what the nature of the surface was. Um, we knew what Galileo had said. There are dark areas 
uh, Mari and Terra, the light areas, but not, not a heck of a lot more than that. Um, we didn't know the age of the surface. Was it billions of years old or hundreds of thousands of years old? And what was the origin of the craters? We did not know what the origin of all those craters on the surface. Were they volcanic or were they, in fact, made from um, essentially impacts, projectiles coming in from outer space, colliding with the moon at hypervelocity, um, and creating depressions like these? Oh, oh, yes. And the other thing we didn't know was, what's the other half of the moon look like? We didn't even know what the far side looked like. Okay, So we were pretty ignorant about the moon. Um, and there were a lot of outstanding questions. Of course, at this time, as you can see from the hammer and sickle and the Sputnik, the launch of Sputnik really revolutionized everything, okay? Uh, essentially, the anniversary of that was just a couple of days ago, Sunday, I believe. Um, and, you know, that really changed everybody's thinking. I grew up in Washington, D.C. I was a young uh, high school student at the time, and I remember uh, – I was already destined to be a geologist because I was looking down at the ground, wandering around, picking up rocks, et cetera. And Sputnik made me look up. Uh, it made me look up into space. It really fundamentally changed my life. Um, so the bottom line is that the Soviets were doing great, of course. They were launching all sorts of beautiful robotic missions uh, to the moon, uh, landers, uh, ultimately, uh, essentially orbiters, uh, lunacods, and sample return missions, et cetera. And they definitely were thinking about and planning to send humans to the moon. This is what propelled Kennedy, of course, to um, propose in 1961 that we have as a national goal sending humans to the surface of the moon and returning them safely. Oh, by the way, by the end of the decade. Wow. Okay. So I was in graduate school. Uh, slide three, please. Um, I was working on my PhD thesis at Brown University, and it was about shallow marine carbonate environments in the early Devonian of the Appalachians. That those words probably don't mean anything to anybody here. I was studying limestones in shallow water 400 million years ago. How irrelevant can that be? Well, it's pretty relevant to oil industry. And I was thinking about getting a job in the oil industry. And at this time, I kind of looked in the annual college placement annual, a, a book of jobs, basically. I turned to the uh, index, and it had geologists, page 16 to 23, and 47. I said, hmm, what's that outlier? What's on page 47? I turned to page 47, and this full-page ad that is a picture of the moon, a telescopic observation of the moon, with the words simply, our job is to think our way to the moon and back, and a phone number in the lower right-hand corner um, was there. I read this. I looked at this. I never looked at the pages 16 to 23. Um, I called the number. Imagine, how do you think your way to the moon and back? And, of course, it was NASA headquarters. And basically, how could you not answer this ad? Well, I did. After a few little bumps in the road, interviews and all those kinds of things, I got the job. I was just stunned. Um, in slide four, you can see what I did from 1968 to 1973. I worked on exploration strategy. What, what questions do we want to address? Landing site selection. When we figure out what we want to know, where do we go to learn it? And then once we figured that out, how do we – what do we do when we get there? How do we plan out traverses to accomplish what's going on? And this is where the science and engineering synergism came in. How do we work together to implement the science goals and objectives? And again, then, how do we train the astronauts? These were predominantly, in fact, almost solely test pilots, extremely highly motivated, very bright people, but nonetheless with very little scientific and, and geologists, almost virtually no geological background. Then we went on to do mission simulations. How do you practice? We took the astronauts and we uh, out of the field, all over the world, looking at geological environments, pretending we were doing traverses, practicing this sort of thing. We also worked on that in mission control. And then, of course, all of this led up to mission operations, which were the actual missions themselves. When the astronauts got back, we would debrief them and, and uh, analyze the data very, very quickly because, in fact, we needed the feedback to go into the next several missions. And we had to feed forward replanning of subsequent missions on the basis of what we were learning as we went along. So this is an incredibly exciting time. And we had the most unbelievable uh, set of spacecraft, as shown in slide five, uh, the command and service module that you can see in the upper left, with the back hollowed out and in the J missions, 15, 16, and 17, a complete complement of instruments in there looking at the surface from lunar orbit. We had the lunar module, which, of course, took the astronauts to the surface and brought them back safely. Uh, and then, of course, the Saturn V was just unbelievable. It's just hard to imagine 
uh, you know, anybody who's had the, the luck to watch these launches, it's just unbelievable, unbelievable. So we had great engineering equipment to work with, to be sure. In slide six, um, I want to emphasize what's going on with the scientific goals and objectives. So, of course, Kennedy's goal was the major one, but from the get-go, scientists were asked to contribute to, in fact, the program because it was going to become a scientific and um, essentially lunar exploration program. So we wanted to understand the nature, the internal structure, and the history of the moon and its environment. This was basically the charge of NASA and its enabling legislation. And there was a four-pronged approach. Surface science stations, the astronauts deployed what was known as the ALSEP, the Apollo Lunar Surface Experiment Package, which had a whole host of experiments of different types to sense the surface of the moon, its interior, and the environment. They undertook surface exploration, lunar surface observations, photography, traverses, sampling, uh, geophysical instrumentation, etc. There was orbital exploration as the astronaut, primarily the command module pilot, but also uh, the other two astronauts when they returned to um, the spacecraft, the CSM, uh, and a host of SIMBE, uh, basically imaging, uh, sorry, scientific instrument uh, bay uh, experiments that were um, in the back of the command and service module. And of course, don't forget the moon as a platform. Apollo flew Lyman Alpha telescopes, gravity wave experiments, etc., to use the moon as a platform to look into deeper space. And You'll hear from time to time there was no science done on Apollo, or it was all just, you know, essentially scripted, et cetera. That is the best word I can use is, uh, well, I actually shouldn't use that word. That's nonsense, okay? There was a huge range of science at all levels uh, during Apollo. In fact, I was just giving a talk in Moscow, Russia, this morning on some of the latest developments we've learned from the lunar samples and the lunar data uh, that was returned by Apollo and the Luna uh, uh, experiments. So let's press on to slide seven and think about the different missions and think about what we can learn from about the scientific engineering, essentially uh, science operations and engineering synergies. <clears throat> well, of course, there were precursor missions. And in the course of not too much over a year, okay, uh, Apollo 7 in Earth orbit, Apollo 8 in circumlunar orbit, circumlunar traverse, Apollo 9 in Earth orbit to test out the lunar module and the command module together, and Apollo 10 uh, in uh, lunar orbit to, uh, in fact, check the descent and uh, landing profiles, et cetera. These all paved the way in just a few short months. Each of these is just a couple of months apart each, if you can imagine that. And of course, this paved the way for Apollo 11. Now, in slide eight, you can see, in fact, <clears throat> a list of things that I will go through and refer to each time, because what this is, is the kinds of things that science operations and engineering goals working together, shoulder to shoulder, scientists, operations, and engineering uh, staff work to get, in fact, to enhance the uh, scientific return from the Apollo missions. And in fact, Apollo 15, 16, and 17 were scientific expeditions to the moon, but just amazing accomplishments. So of course, the first goal was to land safely and return humans to back to the Earth, but also to deploy experiments. We had experiments on board and to collect soil and rocks to bring back to the Earth for analyses. And in the next slide, um, in slide nine, you can see that Apollo 11 uh, launched on July 16th, and it was targeted in the lower right-hand corner to the Eastern Maria. This was because uh, we wanted to land in a very safe place that would be a flat, smooth place, which of course the Lunar Maria were certainly much, much more smooth than the, than the highlands. Um, and also we didn't know exactly <clears throat> whether they would be able to land on target or not, and so we needed a long range. Also, as the astronauts come back, come out from behind the moon, uh, there needs to be time between um, the acquisition of signal, AOS, and the uh, uh, PDI, or just the descent initiation to land to the surface. So this was the first opportunity to land uh, in the east of the zone. And in fact, that was accomplished by Apollo 11. In the 10th slide, you can see um, uh, Buzz Aldrin setting up the uh, Apollo Lunar Surface Experiment Package. You can see also the range of uh, equipment uh, on the surface uh, deployed around to do different scientific experiments, et cetera. And in slide 11, you can see the traverses, okay, the Apollo 11 extravehicular activity. And I'll refer to EVAs. Everybody, I think, in the group knows what an EVA is. But nonetheless, it's a period of outside activity. Uh, in the case of the moon, 
it's, it's a spacewalk, but it's on the lunar surface. So note the 50 centimeter scale here. Neil and Buzz did a superb job of uh, sample collection and exploration of this area. Uh, and in slide 12, you can see good examples of different venue, vignettes of their um, uh, work on the surface of the moon. And in the lower right-hand corner, you can see Neil and Buzz uh, in geological training when we took them out to places like Meteor Crater, et cetera. In slide 13, you can see just a summary, really, of the activities. One period of extravehicular activity, a little over just about two and a half hours, uh, and a total traverse of just a few hundred meters, okay? Uh, that's not trivial, but at the same time, you'll see it gets better and better. And about 21 and a half kilograms of rocks and soils. And in these rocks and soils, as you can see here, uh, we found out the age, the dark, uh, the dark uh, rocks there, <clears throat> the age of the soil, uh, the age of the Mari basalts. They turned out to be volcanic. They turned out to be 3.7 billion years old. And the white rocks there turned out to be from the adjacent highlands thrown in by impacts. And they were the first thing that gave us a clue as to how the moon evolved in its earliest history. So even from Apollo 11 soils, we had a good idea of the early history of the moon. In slide 14, you can see, of course, that all of us wanted to do better, to do more. So the next idea was to increase the stay time on the lunar surface. We needed to stay there longer to get better ideas of what's going on and explore, deploy more experiments. So we needed to increase the number of EVA periods to two. And also, it was going to be important. Neil landed a, a few kilometers downrange because he, when he pitched over with a lunar module, the first thing he saw was a lot of rocks, big rocks, boulders, et cetera, around the crater. So he flew downrange uh, and, in fact, landed long, as they say in the trade. And um, that was fine, landed safely, et cetera. But we really wanted to be able to land next to some geological objects that, in fact, we could sample and explore in detail. So demonstrating pinpoint landing to increase access also to the highlands and the rougher areas. Let's land between the rough areas. This was all really important. And in the next slide, in slide 15, you can see that Apollo 11, just four months after Apollo 12, sorry, Apollo 12, just four months after Apollo 11, <clears throat> was targeted to the western Maria, which was had fewer craters on it. So we knew it was going to be younger. Um, and we wanted to know how much younger. Was it 3.6 billion? Was it 3.2 billion? We needed to calibrate the curve for the um, uh, number of craters per unit time. Now, interestingly here, um, <laughs> you know, in trying to pick this landing site, um, there was a lot of discussion about how to demonstrate pinpoint landing. And Bob Gilruth, a wonderful, wonderful man, in it from the early start of the program, obviously, um, said, look, why don't we try to land next to Surveyor 3? Surveyor 3 was a robotic spacecraft. Um, that landed uh, several years before in the area that we were interested in. And he said, this will help the engineers have a target and help them demonstrate pinpoint landing. And indeed, uh, in uh, slide 16, you can see uh, Alan Bean getting out of the lunar module and descending to the surface. And Pete Conrad, after he took this picture, is running excitedly over, in fact, to the Surveyor 3, as shown in 17. Um, there's the Surveyor 3 spacecraft. That's Pete Conrad expecting it and taking samples of the, of, uh, the, the, uh, the Surveyor 3 spacecraft to bring back to the Earth. Um, and they did a superb job here. And in fact, they demonstrated pinpoint landing. As you can see, <laughs> that's about as good as you can get <clears throat> without crashing into the Surveyor. And in slide 18, you can see they also undertook a series of geological traverses. In the upper left-hand corner is the traverse map. Uh, you can see the X marks the spot. Of the, um, uh, of, of the landing, and they took traverses after deploying the ALSEP over to Middle Crescent, and then all the way around to Head, Bench, Sharp, Surveyor, and Halo craters, and they got great samples. Uh, in Apollo, uh, in slide 19, you can see they undertook two EVAs, almost eight hours of surface activity, a total traverse of about three kilometers, and they got 34 and a half approximately 34 and a third kilograms of rocks and soils. And it's not just about more rocks, it's about what rocks. So they were really good at picking out the, the rocks from their geological training. The one shown here in this image is a distinctive rock, not typical of the Mari, that was thrown in from the Copernicus crater ejecta and gave us great insight into what was going on in the rest of the crust of the moon. Very fundamental science. In slide 20, um, we learned from Apollo 12 that you know, when you're running around on the surface of the moon, you've got a lot of equipment to carry, and you also have a lot of 
um, rocks that you're picking up, even though it's 1,6 G, they kind of ramp up there when you're dealing 30 to 40 kilograms of rocks. So we wanted to get a, 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 some equipment for transporting tools and samples. And so um, this was a request to the Apollo 12 crew. We talked about this earlier, and indeed it was implemented in Apollo 13 uh, and Apollo 14. And basically, it was a little bit of a wheelbarrow, which you could bring your things around with you, pile, fill it up with rocks, and bring it back to the lunar module to pack up uh, for the trip home. So in slide 21, you can see that Apollo 13, only five months after Apollo 12 launched <coughs> to the moon, and it was targeted to the Embryon Basin ejecta. So what this is is the radial texture deposit, very rough terrain um, that is the ejecta thrown out by the major dark spot in the central part of that, upper part of that image, the Embryon Basin. Huge impact uh, predating the Moria, and we wanted to know how old it was, and we wanted to know what was being brought up from the inside of the moon. So Apollo 13 was targeted to that, and of course we all know, as shown in slide 22, uh, that the explosion uh, in the uh, uh, command in the service module, uh, in fact, precluded their uh, attempts to land on the moon. Of course, and fortunately they were brought back safely. Uh, we've all seen the movie; it was really an excellent portrayal of a lot of how that all happened. I would say too that this was the most wonderful to me patch uh, of the Apollo program. Uh, it Interestingly, it's the only one that doesn't have the names of the astronauts, and it says Ex Luna Scientia, which means from, from the moon, uh, basically knowledge and science. So, of course, I would like that one. Uh, slide 23 uh, shows you that just nine months later, okay, Apollo 14 uh, launched to the surface on January 31st, 1971, to the same landing site. And slide 24 shows you, in fact, how rough that was. You can see a perspective view of the terrain here. This is really rough stuff at tens of meters, uh, uh, essentially altitude and hundreds of meters across variations and ridges and other types of uh, craters and ejecta and so on. Uh, there's Al Shepard, uh, together with Ed Mitchell on the surface with Stu Roos in orbit, and Al is looking at the geological map, uh, essentially working around to get the right samples. And these, both of these people were highly motivated and extremely good observers and in the next slide, which is slide nine, uh, 25, you can see, uh, in fact, a summary of their mission. Two EVAs, nine hours and 22 minutes, total traverses, three to four kilometers, okay? And they got almost 43 kilograms of rocks and soils. And again, you can see the upper right-hand uh, area there, the mobile equipment transporter, which they pulled along like a wheelbarrow with them, um, actually pulled along like a cart, really, not like a wheelbarrow. And, um, and that's what uh, they kept all the materials in, put the samples in, et cetera, the core tubes that you can see uh, uh, Al Shepard taking here. Uh, and it was incredible. It was incredible. You can see the tracks of it going up uh, to the side there. And in uh, the slide 26, <clears throat> you can see that perspective view of the lunar module and then on up into the mountains uh, and the surrounding ridges, et cetera. Interestingly, in the middle, you can see what's called a felsite clasp. This rock recently was examined as part of a rock returned by Apollo 14, and that felsite class is over 4 billion years old, and it really looks like it is not from the moon, but actually came from the Earth, was blasted off the Earth by an impact, fell on the moon, and was incorporated into these breaches. This could well be the oldest rock we have from the Earth, because all the rest have been destroyed by weathering and plate tectonics processes. So the moon gives us a lot of information about the early history, possibly including the early history of the Earth. So in slide 27, we can see, what do we want to do after this, okay? Well, we're doing really well. We're going to rough areas, pinpoint landing, et cetera, but we wanted to get to places outside the Apollo equatorial landing zone. This required um, the command and service module and the lunar module to do a plane change so that, in fact, they could get to higher latitudes. And this is not a trivial thing. This is building confidence in operations and engineering in order to do this. We also wanted to increase the number of EVA periods to three. Okay, we needed more time on the surface. And furthermore, we wanted to provide mobility to reach distant targets. The mobile equipment transporter was fine, but at the same time, you know, we've really wanted to get uh, to kilometers away from the, the, the landing site. And so, as you can see in slide 28, on Apollo, six months later, six months later, Apollo 15, July 26, 1971, launched to the Embryon Basin, uh, the rim of the huge basin, 
and to a sinuous rill, a river-like feature, very mysterious in lunar history, uh, and we wanted to land between a mountain of the rim of the basin and the sinuous rill. In slide 29, you can see what I mean by getting outside the equatorial Apollo zone. The red square there is the equatorial Apollo zone, uh, and you can see, in fact, that you know that, that's that's great. There's a lot of diversity there, but we wanted to get to higher latitudes, and that's that's critically important. So, working with the engineers um, and the operations people, um, we were able to, in fact, devise a plan to. They were able to devise a plan to get us to these higher latitudes. In Apollo 15, you can see there. Um, uh, is a good example. In slide 30, you can see a view of the landing site. Now, this is not trivial, okay, because the bright areas in the right-hand side of the image, uh, one of those uh, just to the east of the landing site is Mount Hadley, which is 14,000 feet above the surrounding plains that they're going to land on. And then just to the west of that is a depression there called Hadley Rill. You can see the sinuous nature of that. It looks like a river. Um, it's 900 feet deep, so this required a steeper descent path for the lunar module, as well as a plane change in the first place to get there. And so we worked very closely with the astronaut corps, with the operations people, and in fact, Dave Scott said, I think we can do that. So we went and did a bunch of simulations um, in, uh, in uh, the flight simulators and said, yeah, we'll do that, we'll do that, no problem. And so this was important because the engineers um, were terrifically aided by operations and also the astronauts who were actually flying the missions. They were all engaged together at the same time. In slide 31, you can see that, in fact, they successfully undertook that steep descent. You can see Mount Hadley in the background and the lunar module landing on the surface, as well as um, the lunar rover, which was, in fact, packed in that little place where you can see the flag, and that uh, bay opened up, and the rover was deployed from there. Uh, and basically folded up and unloaded when they got onto the surface. Uh, Dave Scott and Jim Irwin unloaded it, and slide 32 shows you uh, it in all its glory and the rough topography in that area, uh, as well as slide 33, which is one of my favorites, which shows Dave Scott ready to go uh, with the field geology maps. You can see there um, uh, just, just uh, uh, right of the hand controller there waiting for Jim Irwin to take this picture and get on the rover and get going, okay? So um, slide 34 shows, in fact, that they undertook three periods of extravehicular activity. One stand-up EVA where they de depressurized and looked out at the surface. Why would you have a stand-up EVA? We landed in 20-meter resolution lunar orbiter images, 20-meter, okay? So we didn't know what the surface looked like to the detail. So Dave said, well, look, I'll just uh, depressurize, stand up, look around like any good geologist would do, go to the high ground, and get a view of what's going on. That helped us immensely in the final planning of the traverses and the interactions with the astronauts uh, in real time, actually, to, uh, to uh, assess uh, the most important scientific areas. The astronauts got seven kilometer radius from the lunar module. Um, this is the walk back constraint, seven kilometers, okay. And they undertook a total traverses of over 30 kilometers and 77 kilograms of rocks and soil. This is Dave in the right-hand corner there, upper right, uh, exploring the slopes of Hadley Delta. You can see the lunar rover in the background there. And what an incredible treasure trove this was. Slide 35 shows the significance of a basically scientific expedition to the moon with multiple experiments, multiple traverses, major different objectives, and so on. Uh, one of them was the Genesis rock. You can see it perched in the uh, left-hand image at the top. Dave knew that we wanted to look for uh, a mineral called an orthocytic uh, felspar, um, and he knew it's, it, what it looked like. From meters, meters away, Dave said, Houston, I think we found what we came for. And no kidding, he could spot the twinning in the plagioclase, which means nothing to most of us uh, except geologists, but he knew what that meant. He saw it glistening. And he collected that rock that is the Genesis rock. He discovered green pyroclastic glass with, with Jim Irwin. That glass, over 40 years later, uh, in our labs at Brown, Alberta Saul discovered water in that with increased technology. And this revolutionized our thinking about the moon. And in th slide 36, you can see there was rock layering and outcrops in Hadley Rill. And finally, uh, on the right-hand side, the seatbelt basalt. Uh, we had talked a lot about gas and magmas. It's critically important. 
um, to understand how the magmas are coming up, how much, uh, how dry the moon is, how wet the moon is, etc. On the way back to the lunar module, Dave was being encouraged to get back because of low oxygen levels, and he looked over and saw this rock you can see there, uh, and said, uh, "Wow!" He said to himself, "I have to have that rock. I know exactly what that is. We need that." So he says, Houston, I have a, a problem with my seatbelt. I'm going to stop and fix my seatbelt. And so he, he did. Oh, no problem. Yeah, make sure your seatbelt's okay. So he gets, um, he stops the rover, gets off the rover, collects the sample, gets back on the rover, and indeed um, fastens his seatbelt. Says, okay, Houston, good to go. I fixed the seatbelt. And that rock is now known, fantastic rock, is now known as the seatbelt basalt. So these were explorers. These were people that knew exactly what was going on. They had great geological training. Dave told me when he got back that the geology was so fun that he didn't even know he had his spacesuit on. Now, you know, I have to say, as a geologist, I'd love to experience that, but I think I would have uh, wet my garment if I'd uh, looked up at the Earth and seen it a couple hundred thousand kilometers away, um, you know. But Dave was there. He was doing the right thing, and he was so excited about it, he didn't even know he had his spacesuit on. Slide 37 shows that nine months later, okay, um, we wanted to go to, uh, with Apollo 16, to another rough place in the highlands because we needed to understand what the possibility was for volcanism that occurred before the Maria and after the crust formed. This is a critically important question. And indeed, as you can see in slide 38, uh, John Young and Charlie Duke and Ken Mattingly in orbit, this is the command and service module uh, from the lunar module before they descended. Uh, and it's a beautiful image here. And then, of course, in slide 39, uh, John and Charlie got down to the surface, and immediately when they got out of the lunar module and started looking around, they realized these were not highland volcanics, but basin and crater impact ejecta. Two, these two uh, astronauts, too, very, very well trained and very good observers in geology. They really enjoyed it. And I have to say that, you know, uh, the flight director would let us come into mission control. Probably, just, probably shouldn't let anybody know this, but anyway, uh, when the astronauts were on the way back from the moon, they'd let us come in and talk to them to kind of like do a little scientific debriefing. And one of the things that, that John said in his classic uh, kind of Georgia drawl was, well, I couldn't see any evidence of volcanism in the Descartes region. Um, I guess you geologists are going to have to go back to the drawing boards or wherever it is you go. And, uh, you know, it's like, yeah, yeah, you're right, Johnny. You spotted this one like crazy, and we, we were wrong. Uh, but this revolutionized our thinking. It, it corrected a complete misunderstanding of the observations from orbit and paved the way for uh, new uh, knowledge of, uh, of the moon and its evolution. And slide 40, the other thing was there was an astronomy from the moon. And this is a good example because the far ultraviolet camera, George Carruthers, a brilliant um, scientist from Naval Research Lab, designed this camera that you can see here. And the red arrow points to it in the, in the shadows behind the lunar module. And there's John doing his Navy salute from uh, a, a meter or so off the surface. This astronomy paved the way for our thinking now of using the moon as a platform. In the lower right-hand corner, you can see uh, the kinds of things that we might be doing in the future. In fact, the Chinese uh, Chang'e 4 has uh, uh, astronomy experiments in the rover on the far side of the moon as we speak. So this is an exciting compliment as well. In slide 41, you can see uh, this is a mistake. There was no SIVA. Uh, there were three EVAs, traversed 27 kilometers, and returned almost 100 kilograms of really incredible rocks and soils. In slide 42, what do we do next? Well, we wanted to send a professional geologist as a member of the surface crew. You know, the, everybody was doing great. The astronauts were beautifully trained. But wouldn't it be great if we could have somebody with professional training in geology, too? And so, of course, as we can see in slide 43, um, Jack Schmidt, uh, together with Gene Cernan, and Ron Evans launched on Apollo 17, eight months later, to the Serenitatis Basin. We wanted to see what this, what's called a dark mantling deposit was like. It looked like it had no craters and might represent volcanism occurring today. So Gene and Jack descended to the surface while Ron stayed in orbit. And in slide 44, you can see uh, <clears throat> Gene on the surface uh, in the rover, driving the rover. This, again, was incredible performance. Hats off to Huntsville uh, on, on the, the rover. Just performed beautifully uh, throughout the J missions, the scientific expeditions to the moon. Slide 45, you can see here um, an example here of sort of some vignettes. Uh, there's uh, Gene and Jack in their uh, um, uh, 
poses, if you will, for um, clearly they're not on the moon at that point, but on the moon they just did a superb job. And you can see in the middle of the valley that they landed in. And again, we never would have been able to land in this valley without the cooperation and understanding of the science and operations and engineering synergism. We worked very hard with flight operations to uh, examine this. That actually, the landing ellipse did not, did not fit in this valley uh, at, uh, at the time, and through a lot of discussion um, with flight operations, et cetera, they finally decided that, oh, it actually does fit. So, um, you know, that was, that was real science and operation synergism. So you can see in slide 46, one of the major discoveries was, in fact, the orange soil. Gene said, Jax, I think we see orange soil. Totally amazing. This orange soil turned out to be volcanic glass beads, and it wasn't young volcanism. It was volcanism that occurred, in fact, 3.7 billion years ago. Jack was able to explore, uh, as you see on the bottom of this image, uh, the, uh, with a lunar rover, uh, this huge boulder that rolled down from the surface and his geological observations were impeccable and really helped us to understand what was going on in terms of the ejector. In slide 47, uh, you can see the summary, three EVAs over about 35 kilometers in, in traverse length and returned 111, over 100 kilograms of rocks and soils, just beautiful. Uh, in the upper left-hand corner, one of my favorite images, uh, the uh, back fender of the rover uh, broke off, uh, uh, and, and so, uh, you know, it was rooster tailing some lunar dust. And so what do you do? Well, you get the geological maps for the traverses you've already done. You get out the duct tape, and you put, a, a, basically, you tape the geological maps to the back of the fender, and you create a, a fix, okay? So um, that's really a good use for the geological maps from the earlier traverses, and they went on. Uh, with this innovative uh, solution uh, to explore the rest of the surface. So slide 48 is a summary of the Apollo Lunar Exploration Program, the evolution of exploration scientific return. Uh, in the left, you can see a map. In the center, we've centered all the traverses. Um, and basically, Apollo 11 is not visible at this scale. Each increasing circle is one kilometer greater in radius. Uh, and you can see how much the capabilities increased as a function of time. There's some robotic missions in there for comparison. Uh, and the point is we really were able to explore significant areas of the moon, multiple objectives in individual missions in the Apollo 15, 16, and 17 missions. These were the scientific expeditions to the moon. And in the right-hand side, you can see the traverse distances as a function of time and see the absolute influence of uh, the Apollo mission distances enabled by the lunar roving vehicle. I mean, if you compare the first three missions, Apollo 12 and 14, beautiful in of themselves, but less than four kilometers uh, in traverse distance, whereas the J missions, the scientific expeditions, were all in excess of 30 kilometers, okay? So that's important, critically important to success. And of course, the payload weight too, the lunar sample return, it's not just about mass, it's about quality as well, but mass is important, you can see, under 40 kilos for the Apollo 11, 12, and 14, and up to over 100 kilos uh, for the for the J missions, 15, 16, and 17. And each of these were scientific expeditions, so they had, in fact, specific traverse. It wasn't just shoveling stuff into the rock box. It was, in fact, documented, beautiful samples collected in geological context as explored by the astronauts. So slide 49, it wasn't over then, okay? My job at this point was also, even before Apollo 17, was working with the Huntsville engineers to send a lunar roving vehicle to the next landing site. This is called a dual mode roving vehicle. And in slide 50, you can see the Apollo 19 to 21. These were going to be a dual mode rover, which after the astronauts used it at the landing site, they would implement it and turn it over to Houston for, in fact, remote operations. And it would drive to an integrate and interpolate between this landing site and the next one, perhaps three or 400 kilometers away. So this is another additional science and engineering and operations synergistic approach that would have enhanced incredibly uh, the return from these uh, human missions and human and robotic missions. So indeed, the next slide, the last slide here, just next to the last, <laughs> just summarizes uh, the, what we were able to do, starting with landing safely and working up to sending lunar roving vehicles to the next site sending geologists to the moon, and sending scientific expeditions to the moon. So in slide 52, 
What's the legacy of Apollo? Well, really, it's scientific understanding. Of course, it's an incredible engineering accomplishment, but the scientific things we've learned, the legacy of Apollo is not only learning about the early history of the Earth. In the upper diagram, the box diagram, you can see that the early history of the Earth is missing because it's so uh, dynamic. The Earth is so dynamic. Those years are exposed on Moon, Mercury, and Mars, and that's what unravels the record for us. It's also the baseline from which we understand not only the Earth, but the other planets as well. So there was a huge legacy of Apollo, and we want to carry that forward in the scientific exploration of additional uh, uh, parts of the Moon and on to Mars. Okay. So if we go to slide 53, uh, let's turn now to what might be some of the lessons from Apollo uh, for Artemis. Well, first of all, Artemis is going to land in the south circumpolar region, as are missions from lots of other countries. I just listened this morning to uh, in Moscow to um, uh, the Soviet, sorry, it's still the Soviet, to Russian plans, okay, for um, uh, future lunar exploration. You know, we're working with them on landing site selection in the same area here, okay. Uh, robust plans for China. China has a great, India is going back to the moon. Uh, UAE and so on. So um, there's lots of opportunities here uh, and for future exploration. And a lot of it is centered, indeed, in the south circumpolar region. This is really important because it's a long way from um, the Apollo zone and the lunar sample return zone. It's very different in geology. Uh, and there's lots of things. I'm not going to go over this list on the left, but there's tons of different reasons to go here that are increased scientific capabilities and in trying to understand questions that we've never been able to address before, uh, the far side of the moon, the South Pole, can, oh, tons of things that I could go on for hours, but fortunately for you, I won't. I'll stick to the operations implications. So let's go to the next slide, slide 54, and let's just try to take the last couple of slides here to draw some lessons, okay? Um, I would say not so much lessons, but experience, okay? So what do we learn from Apollo, and how does it relate to human, lunar, and planetary exploration? Well, first of all, I think oftentimes you hear people say, well, science, that's, that's uh, you know, that's, that's different. Um, you know, it's not exploration or whatever. Science, you know, the simplest definition of science is just the exploration of the unknown. That's all we're doing. That's what I do all day. I explore the unknown. What do we not know? Um, how do we find it out? And how does that help us understand where we are and where we're going? It's very critical. So, it's not a mystery, and it is exploration. Second thing is Apollo. It wasn't just Apollo 11. I mean, you know, Apollo 11 was an incredible accomplishment, but you can see from what happened throughout the Apollo Lunar Exploration Program that at each step of the way, science, operations, and engineering synergism really helped us to increase the capabilities and produce a legacy that is just unbelievable, unbelievable scientifically, to our daily knowledge, to our understanding about where we're going uh, on the Earth and where we've been in the past. The third point is that the Apollo Lunar Exploration Program was the Apollo Lunar Exploration Program. We're not going to reinvent, um, we're not going to repeat history here. I like the uh, concept of what's past is prologue, okay? Um, and also the, the kind of mantra that history doesn't repeat itself. But it sure rhymes, okay? So you, you, you all know this in your daily lives when things come up again. We did that before, but, you know, let's don't remember how it worked out, so we're going to have to re, redo it. And think, but, you know, it rhymes. It's not going to happen exactly the same, but it comes back. So that's what I would like to carry forth from the Apollo Lunar Exploration Program. We're not going to go back and do it exactly the same way, but it rhymes. There are themes here that are really important. That's what I'd like to bring to bear in, uh, in, in our, our discussion here. The other thing is that NASA has undergone a transition since the Apollo Lunar Exploration Program to the International Space Station. And this is really important. It is so, sorry about this. It is so um, really critical to think about this because um, this has a lot to do with how we can have success in the future. For example, there's a wonderful paper by Sergei Krikalev, one of my favorite astronauts. He, he's obviously trained in the U.S., but he's a, a, indeed a cosmonaut. Um, he's a real hero in Russia, uh, and he should be. He's a great guy. He's just absolutely amazing and smarter than a whip. Um, Sergey wrote this paper with a couple of his colleagues in Astronautica in 2010. You should read this paper. It's really good. What was he talking about? He was pointing out that the crew on the ISS was really 
transitioning from creativity to determinism. And what did he mean by that? Well, I would put it a different way, from exploration to operations. Now, those two things aren't mutually exclusive, but basically in Apollo, operations was exploration, and exploration was operations. In the ISS, Sergei claims, it's really determinism, that we've lost the creativity of the astronaut human capability and gone to determinism, where you get your uplink in the morning with a list of tasks, and you end up doing them, and you know everybody's doing well and keeping operations on the space station going. But he says that basically we're losing the creativity. So that's one of the things we want to really try to restore. And that's one of the things we absolutely had in Apollo. So the Artemis Lunar Exploration Program, let's pay attention to what I call Krikalev's Law, Balance, Exploration, and Operations. And in slide 55, um, this is how I hope we can work together to do this. And so here's some of the things I would say from the Apollo program that we can not repeat exactly, but essentially have it rhyme so we have uh, some of the really positive aspects of Apollo. First of all, create a science, operations, and engineering culture. Think about the synergism. The Apollo experience, we work shoulder to shoulder all the time, science, operations, engineering, and it really paid off. I mean, <laughs> so it pays to engage and embed the scientific community in the process, okay? I, I fear that's lost in some of the ISS operations um, but it needs to be regained. And a critical point here is that we need to invest in learning each other's language. <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't speak engineering, okay? I was a systems engineer in Apollo. I was actually a geologist, but I, my title was systems engineer. I never had a course in engineering. I didn't even know what a systems engineer was, but I was one. And in fact, it's very simple. Think your way to the moon and back, okay? So we need to uh, integrate that back into the system in a way that is really exploration oriented. And again, lunar surface operations, it's not just like ISS operation, it is actually an exploration plan. We're not going there just to set up a base, you know, see how cold it is, blah, blah, blah. It's exploration. We have the same kinds of things to do there that we did in Apollo. And, you know, it's really important that we view this as an exploration plan, not just as an operations plan. And astronaut training. The astronauts are gonna be on the surface for days, multiple days, okay, not just a few hours of EVA, but multiple, multiple days, many, many EVAs, etc. So lunar surface uh, exploration astronaut training, we had kind of a mantra uh, in Apollo, I think, which we call T-cubed, okay, train them, trust them, and then turn them loose. I fear with all the technology we have now, we're going to want the astronauts to take their iPhones with them, their smartphones, etc., and be texting us every minute of everything they see. You really need to have them explore the moon. This is another problem potentially uh, with the idea of um, uh, that Krikalev talks about. Okay, we need to have them do their job. We need to be there in Houston uh, to, in fact, help them, as we did in Apollo. We didn't sit over their shoulders. We waited for them to ask. We monitored what was going on. We made suggestions as appropriate. But the bottom line was train them, trust them, and turn them loose. We were there to help, and we did many, many times. Okay, and so this is important. This is really an important thing, and it's going to be even more important when the astronauts <clears throat> get to the moon and Artemis. I mean, you know, you get out of the lunar module, uh, you uh, plant the flag, you take the call from the president. You got another 10 days. You better learn some geolingo and better get into the astronaut, you know, kind of like exploration aspect. Otherwise, you know, it's not going to look good. So that's important. Also, a key point here is human, human and robotic explorations and partnership. There were, before Neil Armstrong set foot on the moon, there were 21 robotic missions that were launched to the moon to figure out what it was like. 21, okay? And they can take place in a context. We're going to have lunar rovers there in a not too distant future with Viper, et cetera. So it's a partnership. This also needs to be factored into human exploration. We need to bring back lots of samples, okay? Um, because you can never take a lab that you can have on the Earth to the moon, never, okay? There'll always be increasing capabilities that will be better than what we can carry out in space. So we need to re bring back lots of samples again and again and again, and the astronauts need to be trained and smart enough to get the right samples. Right now, Artemis III uh, is, in fact, restricted to less than 50 kilograms of samples. This is, prob this is related to an Orion constraint and, uh, and bringing back samples. Um, that's less than, um, you know, that's about the same size or less than what was brought back from Apollo 11. 
need to do better than that. That's something everybody needs to work on because this is the coin of the realm. Not only getting good samples, good astronaut training, good selection, good traverses, good mobility, but also to, in fact, um, increase the payload capability of samples returned to the Earth. We also need to engage youth in diversity. I mean, you know, okay, uh, if you think about it, I, you know, I saw the movie Apollo 13, and I was talking to Jack Schmidt, the lunar module pilot for Apollo 17, a couple of weeks later. I said, Jack, I've seen hundred really awful space movies, and Apollo 13 was, was uh, you know, that was just the thing I thought was most like what it was like to be in mission control during the missions. And he said, yeah, you're right, Jim, but there was just one problem. I said, what was that? He said, everybody, all the actors in mission control were too old. Don't you remember that the average age in mission control was 28 years? Now, you know, that would you would you turn the Artemis program over to 20-somethings? Well, you should, okay? You should. Okay, you should bring those people in and increase the diversity because in diversity comes quality. So this is really important. It's hard to look back and realize we were all under 30 at that point. Not all of us, but most of us, um, but we were. So Artemis, forward to the moon and on to Mars. And I have to tell you that Mars, uh, in the last slide here, slide 56, is really on the horizon, okay? I, I could go on forever, which I won't, fortunately for you today, uh, to talk about the excitement of Mars. We have three spacecraft on the way. We have another one coming at the next opportunity from the European Space Agency, uh, the Chinese lander, the, uh, the NASA lander, uh, the UAE orbiter, et cetera. These, these are all absolutely fantastic missions, and they're paving the way for human exploration of Mars. And I, I can't tell you how exciting Mars is. It's just unbelievable. So the past is prologue. I hope we learn from Apollo and apply some lessons that will help us to go, indeed, forward to the moon and then on to Mars. Well, that's a wrap on this episode. Your feedback is very much appreciated. Please use our Twitter channel at The Economy Space to contact us or send an email to podcast at spaceq.ca. As always, if you like what we do, please support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash spaceq.